My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, before we get started, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. I'd also like to utilize a huge, or give a huge shout-out and thank you to all the awesome people who support me over at patreon.com slash mtgandquarantine. It's a huge round of thank yous to Mr. Big Benz, Anomaly, Nick S., Frugal Brutal, Jen of the Filthy MTG Casuals, and Coach Jero for supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash mtgandquarantine for more information. Today's episode of the podcast is going to be a in-depth look at the color white in CDH. And of course, when we're talking about white in the color pie and the CDH, there's only one person to call, and that is the one and only mono white guy, Charles. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. No problem. Yeah, so again, Charles, I know that I just had you on the show recently talking about some other things, and the 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 idea of white in CDH kind of came up again. Just, you know, the viability. I know we've talked about this before when we did the Planeswalker series, but I think it really deserved its own episode. So... Again, we have this list of, you know, some basic questions about white and CDH, and we're just going to basically do a discussion, pick your brain on some of these thoughts, and just try to give the listeners out there a better idea of exactly how white is placed in CDH in in kind of in relativity by itself or with other colors to the other four colors of the color pie. Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So... Sorry, could you could you uh, repeat that question again? Yeah, I so, probably you want to know specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So again, going off the question here, um, is white viable in CDH compared to the other four colors? And what mechanics does it bring that's relevant to that end of the spectrum of the CDH format? Uh, yeah. So so white is pretty viable in CDH, um, but the angle in which it comes at it is, um, pretty different. I think that like one of the things that uh, should be emphasized about CDH is that as a format that emphasizes competitiveness, winning is sort of paramount to the objective of the game. It, it means a lot to win, and less so about like how you win. Uh, and so oftentimes you are looking for some of the most cleanest, brutal, most efficient ways to winning the game. Now that being said, um, as a game overall, uh, and it being like a four-player free-for-all, if you're the player who's going first, you know you have the ability to just win the game if all things considered equal in that way because you have the ability to attempt to win the game first. And if no one's playing interaction, then yeah, you could just kind of... Then the first player always has that type of advantage. And so we get into the finer points of deck construction and what each color then offers to that. Like, for example, 
If we exclude Thassa's Oracle, what does Blue offer in CDH other than counterspells and interaction? Like, counterspells won't ever get you to win the game, right? Thassa's Oracle will get you to win the game. Mm -hmm. Demonic Consultation will get you to win the game. Uh, Ad Nauseam will get you cards that will get you stuff like Thassa's Oracle to win the game. And so does Dockside. Right? And so mm -hmm. each of these cards propels you to winning the game, but counterspell having a counterspell in hand doesn't put you anywhere closer to winning the game. It helps you avoid losing the game. Sure. And so, in this light, right, I, I went over like I guess the three colors of Grixis here of how each of those colors contribute to winning the game mechanically mm -hmm. speaking. Uh, red has like the ritual celebrants. Black has like the tutors. Uh, blue just has Thassa's Oracle, but. The other side of blue is the defensive part, and that's what's relevant about that. And the reason why I'm bringing this up about blue is that white also fills in this particular niche now. Uh, so answering your question as to what white contributes or adds to that is that defensive measure in the game. Uh, a lot of the stack pieces in white, particularly the asymmetrical ones that people like to gravitate to, uh, like Draineth Magistrate, uh, and read your captain of Aos, help it so that you can more easily defend yourself against your opponents, but also protect your way, your line of winning against other interaction. Like Ranger Captain of Aos, you know, preventing your opponents from using counter magic to stop your combos, silence uh, the same way. If you're a creature based combo deck, definitely silence allows you to cast multiple creature spells in a single turn, preventing your opponent from using their non creature counter spell to stop you. Um, and uh, Ether Sword Candace, especially if you're like an artifact based deck that slings a lot of artifact spells together, and your opponents really can't do anything to stop you in that regard. And then you have like Grand Abolisher and Myrel, um, they're, they're, they're all pretty good. Uh, this is something that like white tends to uh tout a lot in terms of what it offers. Um, and so mechanically speaking, white is a color that looks to uh, set the rules of the game uh, and put itself in advantage. And primarily it has this type of, one of the important rules that White sets that, you know, CDH likes, there's two. One is the, you know, I have the stick and no one can interact against me while I, while I hold this stick, right? So those Grand Abolisher, Ranger Captain, Myrel, Silence type effects I can go on with, like Wake, Calamity's Wake, all, all that stuff, right? And the other one is Rule of Law, uh, which is, in a particular playstyle of CDH that is uh, akin to stacks. I, I feel like when someone says stacks decks, they can't really say that without rule of law. I mean, like, there's blue stacks decks that run the original rule of law, which is Arcane Laboratory. Uh, and But, you know, I think blue stacks decks are more synonymous with cards like Trinisphere and Winter Orb and Static Orb. But uh, any stacks deck that runs white, typically you expect at least one variant of a rule of law effect either it's deafening silence in a true lane deck or holen deck however you want to pronounce that or like a uh ether sworn canonist and like some sort of artifact based deck like teshar or uh i think it's brea the the uh the sands green artifact yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah so <clears throat> any of those uh, tends to be uh, it tends to be associated with that where uh, again it plays that you know asymmetrical style of I can do a lot of things and you can't and it's very efficient because you're not spending mana or cards to defend your line anymore it's only one card to shut off 
a lot of like things that your opponents could be doing so that you can go and secure your win. Um, that being said, uh, I will say this with a caveat because a lot of times people tout this about stacks. If you play against a very smart and skilled opponent, they will play through that. And that is a huge level up for anyone playing white and playing stacks to just be smarter and more skilled at controlling your own stacks pieces, especially the ones that are symmetrical, not asymmetrical, and learning how to play through that. And that is, I think, like actually a challenge to playing mono white. A particular drawback is that the learning curve for that is much steeper in that regards. For sure, for sure. I mean, we've I I know we have talked about a couple of the decks, and again, by this point, we have also talked to you about your own OW deck as well, and. Yeah, that requires a completely different way of thinking as the brewer and as the player when you're going to sit down a pod with that deck because it has to go at things very differently than the vast majority of colors, vast majority of decks can in the CDH meta. So you really have to try to find and lean into white's strengths, which you did mention the stacks pieces and also the hate bear pieces that are going to be able to help you break the parity that you're trying to set and try to be able to get yourself ahead, just in the same way other decks are trying to use their colors and their cards to be able to get advantage. You're trying to do the same while also really hampering everyone else. Yep. Yeah, that can definitely blow back against you. Sure. Um, uh, I, so as an example, uh, I was playing in a CDH pod a while back at my game store, and uh, I was playing a mono blue $75 budget casual deck in a CDH pod. Uh, and it didn't matter... I mean, like, like it didn't matter that I was at a very huge disadvantage in terms of like card quality against my opponents. Like, one of my opponents just landed like a turn, uh, like a turn two Trinosphere, um, mm -hmm. in their Rakdos stack deck, and I'm like, and then the table just couldn't really do anything. But I was hitting my land drops, and so I ended up casting Displacement Wave X equals two, uh, and so what that does is that it bounces every non-land permanent with mana value two or less. And so and the reason why I did it was because the other three players weren't hitting their land drops. They were playing their mana rocks mm -hmm. through their other mana rocks. And so now with Trinosphere still in play, because I only bounce everything that costs less than Trinosphere, they couldn't cast their rocks again because Trinosphere blocked it. I had turned my opponent's own Trinosphere back against them. Uh, and uh, even though they were the one who played it and it's on their side of the battlefield, really it's being used to my advantage now. And so when people talk about like breaking parity and all that stuff, it's not very clear cut. Uh, it's very much like there's an article on, I think it's like Star City Games or the, a really old one called um, uh, Who is the Beatdown, right? Like in a limited 1v1 game uh, where uh, are you the aggressor, the one who's attacking your opponent and you have to, or are you the, the, the one who's, being beaten down and you need to play defensively you need to find that removal spell or that combat trick spell to turn the tables on your opponent and just bide your time like in any flow of game there is that kind of idea of like who is the person who is initiating the threat and who is responding to that threat right and who is mm -hmm. are you developing or are you trying to close the game out right uh, games tend to have this type of mode and you can look at this in even non-magic games like chess like are you uh, making a development on your board or are you going to like you know start trading pieces on the table 
Uh, and in and so when we go back to talking about parody and stuff, that is something very very important that you know you you brought up, is that yes you like I think that everyone talks about breaking parody, but I think people need to realize that uh, parody can shift even with the same piece in play and even the same you know uh, two card parody breakers that you have in play like Urza plus Winchward, it can easily get reversed uh, without even. You know your opponent having to remove that like i remember playing my heliod deck against an urza player and they had played uh winter orb to uh to lock out people on on their lands but then on my turn you know i uh i played a static orb and uh then the urza player at the end of my turn before their turn they tap down winter orb and then they proceed to untap for their turn and then they tried to untap all their lands, but they completely forgot that, you know, I have a static orb in play now. So they can only untap two permanents. So either they untap two lands or they untap their winter orb and their land so that everyone can untap, uh, uh, so that the winter orb's effect is applied normally. So now they are, I forced them back into parity without even removing any of their pieces, uh, using another stacks piece to layer on top of that. Uh, and, and that's something that like is an advanced level play. I think that some people don't realize because I see a lot of stacks players play their stacks pieces and their parity pieces together like it's some sort of A plus B combo. But because the game is not over yet, uh, you make yourself very susceptible to someone else layering an additional piece or rule or even playing a card that changes the landscape of the battlefield so that the stacks now place so that your stacks pieces now play to your opponent's advantage and not yours so um there's a little extra addendum right there about yeah uh, it's, that's really interesting that you bring up trinisphere because again i from my own experience again i'm, I'm gonna dip into the bag of tricks regarding goto um trinisphere does work great for certain things in that deck you know keeping my opponents off of things and that's in mono red but it can also really harm me too if i'm also running things like swat or magnetic theft or you know literally anything that costs one or two mana well all of a sudden i'm burning myself out doing that and yeah it's it's very easy for stacks to go wrong especially if you uh don't really deploy it at the right time or you know just if you're unlucky it is a. This is why they call stacks like a like a. This is why they call like, you know, combo like a poker player's kind of game where there's a lot of hidden information that you're playing with your hand, bluffing, uh, and and sort of like you know finding your opening there to like execute it, and then there's a whole sequencing that's involved with it. But then on stacks end where it's more like a game of chess one wrong move can set you back very far in the tempo meter here, mm -hmm. much like you mentioned. All right. Yeah, so let's move on to the second question here. And again, we've definitely touched on this one already. So it's already pretty much been answered, but I just wanted to get all of your thoughts on that. And that is, what does Mono White especially look to do in CDH? Is it just about stacks? Or as with your OW deck list, you show that you don't necessarily need to rely on heavy or even really a lot of hate bears necessarily to be able to get your game plan going. Would you say that the vast majority of mono white decks really need stacks to be able to, you know, not, not necessarily break parity, but, you know, to be able to get ahead? Or do you think that there's some wiggle room for mono white and CDH that maybe people don't talk about so much? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're you're right on the ball there. Um, with about like the 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 forecast for stacks because uh, currently what we're seeing in the meta game, the meta game often shifts. Like mm -hmm. uh, when I first entered during like the Flash Hulk, stacks was just on the rise, and then there was a dominance of stacks for a while in terms of like it being a popular deck. Now more and more people are sort of questioning about like are stack sticks actually viable, and this is based on like tournament. Uh, CDH, which is different from like regular CDH. Um, and that might be like a whole nother podcast entirely about what is tournament CDH versus like regular CDH. Oh, that totally yeah. is. From from experience, I, I know it's vastly different. Your preparation is different also because everything really counts when you're in a tournament versus a, just your LGS. Yes, and the scoring is different too because uh, sometimes you are just playing to draw the game, uh, especially if you can't win because... Uh, you do get points if the game is a draw, and so it changes players' incentivizations. I know that I work with tournament organizers like Eminence and Monarch, and uh, it's something that like we've been trying to tackle on in terms of like finding the best set of rules in a tournament to discourage players from wanting to draw all the time, because that's an outcome we, we typically don't really like seeing, because uh, you know in, in a game you want to play to win, and that's the spirit of CEDH, Right, but sometimes in a tournament, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, but yeah, a lot of these things tend to shift. That like, uh, if you're being moved up in pairings, for example, um, then you are always playing against better opponents, better players, and so your threat assessment can be based on your meta game knowledge of who am I playing against, who is higher on the on the leader brackets. Especially when you want to look at things like. How, how how tiebreakers are, are are settled and and tournament results vary. The, the standardization of tournaments is um or, or tournaments tournament rules are more standardized now. Like chaos, mox masters, uh, like any of the eminence tournaments, uh, monarch. They 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 tend to have a very like like level set of rules now. Uh, whereas before it was not uh unanimous. Uh, but now th th there's there's more of a standardization that we understand when we go into a CDH tournament. And so as we have more than tournaments within this year and uh, onwards, we'll see that and we'll have like a better understanding of like how CDH tournaments are being played. In fact, we're experimenting right now with uh, tournaments in uh, removing turns when when time is called. Like the, the game is just over instead. Um, because uh, we we've had tournaments before like uh we in Oktoberfest we had a game go to turns and it last an extra hour during turns. Yeah, same same crazy. thing happened in Silicon Dynasty where the top 16 match did go an hour and a half over time and that was not necessarily the best thing for everyone else kind of standing around waiting for top 4. So I I definitely understand that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so yeah. Yeah, so given that the mono white here, yeah, so again, we we talked about the tournaments, we talked about the the casual play, but yeah, just do you need yeah. stacks to to win with mono white, or is there just some extra wiggle room? Yeah, so so uh, yeah, I went off on a bit of a tangent there. That's but... totally okay. I I always love well, hearing yeah. your tangents, Charles, because they're always <laughs> very insightful. And frankly, you gave me some really good fodder for a new episode eventually. Whether um, I, I, again, I don't know exactly if it would just be you or we could bring some other folks on as well. Just feel like that'd be an excellent further future episode. So definitely okay. something kind of in the back of the brain. Yep. And so, uh, but, but bringing this all up to speed, right? There, there, there's a, 
Uh, the metagame shifts all the time, and I don't want people to think that. Like, it's the end-all and be-all, like, Stax is gone, Storm is here to stay, or mid-range is the way to go. Uh, I'm currently playing, like, a bunch of mid-range decks, and, and, and Mono White definitely has... With the new cards that Mono White has, it has more to its repertoire now, where it can play more styles and approach. Uh, which, actually, if you look at the other Mono Colors, Mono White, I think, is more flexible in that regard. Uh, next to probably, like blue uh or or green or red like like black i think is the one that kind of struggles a bit where it is solely more focused as a combo deck it has a very hard time playing control in this particular meta unless if you have like a mono black discard type of focus deck but uh, even then like the what the other colors tend to bring to the table uh and how much research has gone into it uh, there's more, I think, in Mono White's department uh, for some reason. I, I guess, like, people, I guess, like, the propaganda that White really sucks has encouraged a lot of people to invest in making White really good with, like, different play patterns and approaches. But you have, like, combo decks like Teshar, which uh, I, I'm currently in the midst of doing research on and seeing if there's, like, a mid range version of Teshar, especially with, like, the newer artifact cards and such, uh, like that. And, uh for for teshar yeah and, sure sure yeah before we go anywhere further here do you want to quickly explain exactly how the teshar deck works oh yeah sure uh oh for, for me yeah sure uh so 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 teshar ancestors apostle is uh like a Clark clan ironworks deck so if anyone has ever played with Clark clan ironworks which is also like abbreviated as kci uh Clark clan ironworks uh is a alter uh, effect that allows you to sacrifice an artifact uh for to create two mana so it's a mana ability and so uh because it's a mana ability it is notorious for uh, because if anyone ever dumpster dies and reads the rules of magic you'll understand that mana abilities don't use the stack and you can activate mana abilities while you are casting a spell uh so not not when the spell is on the stack but literally as you are putting a spell on the stack you can activate Clark Clan Ironworks. It is a uh, casting spell is nine different game actions that you are taking or nine different steps that you're taking. And so oftentimes for a lot of beginner magic players, they often think of casting a spell as one singular thing that you're doing when in reality, you're doing like nine different things when you put a spell on the stack. Uh, and so uh this 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 gets into like some nitty-gritty nuance, but you are able to sacrifice an artifact uh with Teshar and uh get that same artifact that you sacrifice back into play if it's like an artifact creature for example let's say that uh you have a mirror retriever in play and you cast another spell like uh uh what's it junk diver or whatever the the the, the other version of mirror retriever is it's the three mana bird that's a one one i think it is junk diver you, i think you're you right cast, yeah yeah you cast that card uh but and what you do is that you put that card on the stack and you uh, determine how much you're paying for. So it's usually three mana. Uh, and uh, you then uh, get to the step where you then uh, add mana, where, you're, where you add mana to your mana pool. So you activate uh, KCI's mana ability, sacrificing your Mirror Retriever, putting it into your graveyard. Now, uh, Teshar has this triggered ability of when you ever, whenever you cast a Historic spell, but this triggered ability only is checked after you've finished doing all the steps to casting your spell. So when you get to this part and you sacrifice Mirror Retriever, Teshar's trigger is still not on the stack yet. 
And so now that you have, uh, now that you've gone through this whole process, right? Uh, and you now have the mana floating in your mana pool. You then pay for Junk Diver's uh, mana cost, and now you've finished the whole process to actually casting your spell. You haven't even, like, passed priority yet. But now that you've finished casting your spell, the last thing that we want to do is check for any triggered abilities that are triggered when you cast the spell, which Teshar's ability has. And it now sees that Mirror Retriever is in your graveyard. Whereas, you know... And, and it was in your graveyard before that trigger went on the stack. And so now that you're putting the trigger on the stack, you can target the very same mirror retriever that you had in play and put it back onto the battlefield, uh, which is pretty crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and mirror retriever also has the death trigger where you can put an artifact back into your hand. And so you can do this loop over and over and over, and you start looping infinitely for infinite mana, and you can just shoot your opponents to death with like a walking ballista or whatever you want have you. Like even like a Triskelion could work because you can sacrifice that and loop it all over again as well with infinite mana. Uh, So, yes, that is is Teshar. And it plays into, you know, those nitty-gritty nuances in the rules about casting spells and understanding how triggered abilities work and how state-based actions work. I mean, stacks itself also relies on this. Every A lot of stacks pieces in general are continuous effects that alter the rules of the game. Uh, so again, uh, this is like, I think like the tricky part because outside of just knowing how to play your stacks pieces properly or your hate pieces properly, you also just have to have very good knowledge of how magic is actually played because a lot of people yeah like a lot of people just don't actually really like like they 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 play magic but they play what they think is magic it's like you know in math class like you you think you know how multiplication works and then you like take a uh like a like a proof theory like discrete mathematics course and you find and you learn that the proof for how multiplication works uh across like a set of numbers is like oh Okay, well, this 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 completely changes my understanding of like actual basic arithmetic. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is that satisfactory enough for an explanation about Teshar? I mean, definitely, definitely, and I mean, it sounds like Teshar doesn't necessarily need to rely upon a boatload of stacks pieces because you're not necessarily trying to do that. That's not most of your game plan. It's kind of almost more incidental, I would say. Yeah, so so uh, Teshar is can be a very dangerous combo deck uh, because uh, it actually bypasses a lot of stacks more than some people realize. Like the Junk Diver, Mirror Retriever combo line is all creatures, so it goes straight through Daphne Sons and Aethersworn Canis because they're also artifacts, mm-hmm. right? So you can have both Daphne Sons and Aethersworn Canis and everyone will be like, oh, the Teshar player is locked out. They are very far from being locked out. Uh, actually uh and so there's a lot that goes on over there uh but that is a combo deck uh in its current iteration as far as i understand it is a combo deck uh but uh i I do believe that there's potential for this as a mid-range deck where you can cycle through hate bears and control the game and such uh out the dawn sky is a mid-range deck like a lot of decks run stacks pieces but they don't call themselves stacks decks because nowadays, a lot of decks are doing a lot of things. Like, uh, combo decks aren't truly just combo decks anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is where, like, mid-range becomes very bloated in this terminology. Because now it encompasses a lot of different types of mid-range strategies. 
like a Tindothrasios mid-range deck. It's different from like an Al the Dawn Sky type of mid-range deck. Uh, or it's different from like Rog Sai, which, you know, is supposed to be like a Grixis mid-range deck with a very explosive storm potential where it can just combo off whenever it wants to, but it can, you know, bide its time through the middle parts of the game uh, while there's still, like, light on stacks pieces in play, and it just, you know, plays a couple of bounce spells and then goes off, right? And so that, that that's what I mean, as in, like, the CDH metagame landscape has changed, uh, and in, so, in doing so, a lot of colors uh, have to, like, in terms of, like, their deck archetypes, have to adapt to that. Uh, and we're seeing, like, older decks, like, I would say, like, Godo and Savala, uh, probably struggle a little bit. Uh, and this is the reason why I think oh, more people are disenchanted with, like, dedicated stack decks. It's because a very linear strategy nowadays, uh, like, while it might work in terms of, like, a rogue appearance, like Slicer, uh, when you deal with players who, like, are already familiar with it or knowledgeable players... You know, it almost only works once. Consistency is really key in determining sort of like, hey, can this, does this have staying power in the CDH meta? Can this continue to evolve? Can this continue to present itself as a threat even when everyone knows what it does, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, there is a lot more to mono white in uh, CDH outside of just stacks. You have mid-range mono white, you have combo mono white, you have stacks mono white. Uh, and, but... It all does things within the mechanical boundaries of Mono White. It will never be faster than what Grixis can do, because Grixis is literally running two of the fastest colors in uh, the color pie, which is red and black. Uh, but uh, it, it'll, it'll play cards that control the table, and can, and you can over-control the table and to a point of where it's almost like a lockdown, like in stacks, uh, and you just bully your opponent into submission. Or you could, you know, control the table until you're ready to power off and your opponent can't interact with you, which is more of a mid-range strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh, and there is, like, potentially, like, a mono-white, white weenie aggro strategy as well with cards like Adeline or, like, uh, Myrel. And I, I would lump that almost into the category of stacks. But I know that, like, you know, certain rhetoric today, people are calling Winota, for example, which... Uh, Casual players, I think, see as a stacks deck, but more competitive players see as just, like, the first CEDH, like, true-to-form aggro deck. Because uh, there are some games where you can be playing with with Winota and just never... Like, you might have only ever played one stacks piece, which is, like, Archon of Maria, and you just murdered the entire table with, like, angry goblins. And, like, is that really you stacksing the game out? Like, were your opponents really locked out? Or did you truly just win just because your opponents could not find a way to win in the next five turns or in the first five turns because you just killed everyone already then, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely uh, interesting to, to try to figure out how those lines get blurred on what is what in the CDH meta. Because again, you're, you're right. Everything is changing so rapidly with the more tournaments we're seeing, et cetera, et cetera. We're starting to see new viable decks, but also different ways to see those same decks. And, you know, their performance can influence exactly whether you want to call something stacks or whether you want to call something mid-range or turbo deck. And, yeah, it, it gets really messy in there, and I'm, I'm definitely no expert in that. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's definitely confusing for me. So glad that, I'm glad that you, you have a good handle on this because I have no idea. Yeah. 
So uh, if you want like the TLDR to what does you know Mono White look to do in CDH? It definitely looks to control, but you could definitely be more aggressive in terms of ending the game while you are controlling, or you are looking to control for complete dominance and then closing the game out, right? And depending yeah. on which lane you fall into that, right, you're either like a mid-range or a combo deck or like a stacks and aggro deck kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're going to go to the third question here, Charles, and that's going to be this one, which is what are the challenges for anyone playing white in CDH, especially, and I think we're going to use this as mono white, obviously white's in a lot of other decks as a secondary or tertiary color, but I think it's really, and, and this goes back to your point a few minutes ago about the stigma, whether it's fair or not, the white, you know, quote unquote sucks in CDH or in EDH in general. Mm -hmm. And that definitely feeds into this. But again, there, you've already, and you, you have touched on this, but what are the major challenges for playing mono white in CDH? Yeah, uh, this goes back to the very beginning that I mentioned about counter spells. We'll use that as an example. Mm -hmm. A lot of these white cards do not win the game for you they help secure your win they help protect you but if your opponents were never interacting with you in the first place you kind of ask yourself this question like well why do i even need to play these cards you know uh i mean so 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 that's the thing is like you you have a scale uh let's say like mm -hmm. uh say that you walked into like a say that you're a pub stomper walking into a casual crowd and you and you you bring the deck that you want to like gloat as the most pub pub stompiest deck ever right you don't really need to run a lot of white then to do that because a lot of white uh is expecting your opponents to actually be like playing with cards to that would stop you but if you're looking to just steamroll against players who you know were never ever prepared to play against you and never you know had that force of will interaction or, or something like that or even like they're not even packing source of postures like we're literally talking about like you know people in some pauper crowd or whatever that uh then then, then what does white serve you in this situation that some other color can't just do something faster for and so the challenge is so so the challenge for playing white is literally the admission that you are playing in some ways suboptimally speed wise uh, because you are expecting a fair game. Uh, and what I mean by a fair game is that you are expecting your opponents to also be packing heat, right? Uh, the faster your deck becomes, the more destructive or volatile it can it can be. Like say that you're running a lot of fast mana rocks. Well, you could very much easily trip over a collector oof or null rod or stony sods and or car in the great creator and you're kind of sol'd right there. Uh, unless you have like you know a good removal spell or something to like get you back into that uh, swing of things. But if you know. Uh, if you're never running into that, then 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 great. Um, but let's take uh, for example. Sorry, like Battle of the Dawn Sky. I had mentioned earlier mm -hmm. in uh, an earlier episode of yours about how the fact that like a faster deck could just steamroll over Al the Dawn Sky if there is no other pot at the table to help supplement your own removal spells because you want to be able to interact on the stack uh decks that run white like blue farm have often made this concession because uh people look at you know rograk silas and they look at blue farm blue farm is literally rog side with an extra color in it um 
or and I'm being I guess kind of facetious when I say that because it is a lot more complicated. It's much more mid rangier. But what does white add to that strategy? And some players say that you know white is useless. It doesn't do anything here because you know being a better pilot and being better with your counter spells, you can use that uh, to your advantage. But you know white gives you that extra padding in terms of like that safety net. It gives you uh, cards uh, access to to cards like Timna or some type of like. Uh, incremental card draw engine uh, or resource engine like Smothering Tithe and such uh, to facilitate that. And so uh, playing into that whole, this is the thing about like why is that it plays into that whole incremental advantage where as the game goes longer, you are winning in that sense because it has all these like incremental card draw, incremental uh, like resource aggregation uh, effects that you can use against your opponent, like Esper Sentinel and Smothering Tithe and such. But you have, but the challenge to playing white is that, uh, and this comes specifically from like you know someone who's thinking about this in terms of CDH perspective, is that how does any of this help me win the game? And so if you are very much like solidly in the realm of mono white you will ask this question a lot and uh, in previous episodes on your podcast i mentioned combat damage is a really viable thing but uh when you look at like other colors that is not a very like uh as obvious as that actually sounds like if anyone ever plays like limited that is like literally the most common way to winning a game and and 1v1 magic like your Mm -hmm. life total actually matters but in commander and then in high level like competitive commander play it doesn't seem as obvious and 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 so that is like i think like the biggest challenge because i think that a lot of players especially people who only ever play commander might not ever understand yeah if i just attack with like three one ones with flying every turn from like a special procession i actually just do kill the table right if I do this across 10 turns, I've done a total of 30 damage. This literally brings one player closer to death, right? Mm-hmm. Outside of anything else that that player has done, right? If they have a mana crypt, great. That speeds up that clock every turn. Like, what would it be like if your opponent took six damage every turn? You know, that is actually a pretty fast clock. <laughs> I mean, that's what Sarah Ascendant does as well. And, uh, but it's not, again, it's not obvious and, and and oftentimes because it's no simple a plus b i think that that's where like players can really struggle with with uh playing white or like justifying running white in their deck because none of the cards that they play ever propel them forward to ending the game and then during the deck building process they'll be like well i could just rely more on blue to protect my stuff rather than using white stacks pieces um and uh, and, and I have access, and I and it'll give me more blue mana to be able to play Thassa's Oracle because, I mean, two blue pips is much, is actually like pretty expensive, uh, in a multicolor, uh, deck because you won't have, like, you would need a total of four blue pips to even play Thassa's Oracle and a counterspell on top of that. That is actually like very hard to do when you think about that. Um, so, uh, again, the I, I would say that that is like the biggest challenge for white is finding that justification of uh for yourself of like well does this help me win and oftentimes you know uh that an- the answer that you find is uh it will 
is that it will be easier for me to win because of what my opponents are doing. It's a very metagame conscientious color. The the answer to that question of does this help me win is often relative to what group and what environment that you're playing in. And the more unknown and uh, more uh, competitive that environment is, I think white actually does become more... I think that question becomes easier to answer. But if you're just, you know, walking to a crowd and people aren't able to play defensively against you, uh, it becomes a question of like, well, why should you even bother to run white? Why not just run the fastest thing? Because no one is is stopping the fastest thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I, mean, I, I definitely know where you're going with this. Yeah. Makes makes perfect sense. And yeah, again, mono white is also extremely challenging to play in that way, too. It's a lot of technical work. It's knowing when to put out your stacks pieces. Um, and is there really anything else we need to, to go on there to say the mono white is actually very, you need to have a good acumen, good understanding of magic to really be able to pull off mono white and CDH. I think that's, that's very fair. Yeah, I, I would say, so in my career as a magic player, uh, I started off playing um, uh, burn, actually. I think burn is a great, red is a great color to learn how to play magic. You learn a lot of things uh, playing mono red. I think that, and I, I've met a lot of competitive players like Ian from Comedian MTG, uh, who's a huge fan of Burn. Uh, uh, Beck, uh, uh, who, who's now playing Digimon a lot, loves uh, Mono Red Burn. I think, like, you know, Veggie Wagon. Uh, just a lot of Magic players just, I think, really enjoy playing Burn. And it's, like, the most easiest thing to understand when you first start playing out. There's a lot of things that you can do in Red, and it's really fun. Like, Red is a great color if you're learning to play Magic. And as you go through, like, the color pie, right, you can learn to play. Like, learning Red uh, is a really good segue to, like, I think, learning Blue. I think, uh, and you can also learn Green uh, as another axis, uh, especially in Limited. If you're playing Limited Magic, I think you would enjoy, I think anyone learning to play Limited, Green can be a pretty safe bet because a lot of their creatures are just better quality in terms of, like, their stat lines, and you feel good about it. Uh, and black also, you know, gets you to learn removal. Like you can basically learn a lot of the fundamentals of magic across the other four colors. But if you want to like learn like the finer details and advance like that, white is like the challenge because white will give you cards that you're like, this card just sucks. And then you realize like, oh, wait, 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 wait. But if I play this card differently here, right, using like understand like it it literally teaches you i think to rely more on some very uh uh indirect fundamentals like card velocity and tempo which isn't very tangible you can't see it on the battlefield and yet you're winning with it in play um and, and 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 so but you you can't really start from there if you don't have like a basis of like where to begin and i think that like in limited uh, white is probably like one of the strongest limited colors to be playing, uh, especially like right now. I mean, this is this this is the year of mono white. I think like Mark Rosewater has talked about this before. That uh, and a lot of game designers, when you talk to like Watsi game designers, they, they they talk about the swinging pendulum where yeah, every once in a while some color gets his like overblown power up. Like blue had it uh, like way way back back then and then we saw this in green for a while where green had like a lot of insane card draw mechanics and a lot of people were like you know this this feels like a mistake green shouldn't have card draw All right now we're seeing this in white uh where a lot of white cards are just getting like these insane power-ups that make it feel like as 
well, like white can do a lot more than what it used to be able to do, right? I'm not necessarily a fan of it, <laughs> but you know, it is it is now in sort of my repertoire and uh, uh, knowing how to play it and quickly adapt to playing it within white uh, honestly comes from knowing how to play all the five colors of magic. Uh, so that is something that I would encourage if anyone wants to get into mono white is to actually study like everything like be able to comfortably play almost any deck that you pick up and you should then be able to understand and play white pretty well all right sounds good so yeah with that we're going to segue into the last question for the episode here charles so i i hope that you've saved the best for last um last question is going to be and again you just did just touch on this in regards to blue farm uh, what are some of the decks out there in CDH meta that utilize white as a secondary or tertiary color? How And how do those decks differ in using white than mono white decks do? Um, yeah, so like I mentioned about like Blue Farm, uh, Tindathrasios is another one, uh, Kenrith is another one. White is often used, so uh, yeah, and this is a great question. Uh, white is often used in multicolored decks specifically for its um, uh, protective capabilities. Like uh, in CDH, you want it for the silence effects, which I mentioned earlier. But in mono white strategies, you are utilizing synergies with white. Uh, it Like Ranger Captain of Aeos is great, but Ranger Captain of Aeos is actually, it still does a lot for like mono white. Uh, don't get me wrong, but like uh, for mono white, uh, but but there is no really good combo in mono white outside of like say an A plus B Heliod Ballista combo finish, but that's like seven mana total compared to like the three mana that you need for Thassa's Oracle and Demonic Consultation. Uh, it, it's just more of the fact that like uh, in mono white, uh, you do not have access to like counter magic, you do not have access to like tutors you do not have access to ritual or ramp and so uh, a lot of this like leaves people from wanting uh in their multicolor strategies uh and, and so outside of just the protective spells like the silence effects that you have in white you are utilizing white synergies instead to mitigate the lack of ramp hard draw inter like on the stack interaction and uh tutors uh, and so you're playing in a more defensive game. You're you're doubling down on those kinds of control stacks effects. So your opponents are slowed down in the game, uh, and uh, they're unable to utilize you know their their tutors or counter magics because you have something like Aven Mind Sensor in play and Draineth Magistrate. Uh, you could even be playing Stony Silence to mitigate the ramp as well. And you just start building up and building up and building on this pile of you know, cards until you're ready to assemble your combo or your finisher or just alpha strike and kill your opponents with lethal combat damage uh, coming their way. Any of those things, right? And so that that's the huge difference between mono white and decks that use white because the decks that use white when spoiler season comes out, they're only really paying attention to the silence effects. But the mono white uh, decks, players playing mono white decks are looking at like cards that help add more synergy to their strategies help build those uh parody systems that they have uh and give them better control of the game uh and, and so those are your two major distinctions there between mono white and uh decks that run white yeah i i feel like if we were to extend this anecdote to more casual games i feel like white in this vein kind of acts the same way as green does for for more casual decks right is that 
it's not necessarily the crux of decks. I think that people obviously overblow a lot of cases that green is overpowered, but when you really look at what green is being used for in most people's decks is literally just for ramp. They're probably not playing many of the big green scary things that, uh, you know, the, the boogeyman of the casual format, if we want to say that. And, you know, you're just literally seeing the rampant growth, the far seeks, the harrows, and that is literally the only reason you run green mana in there. And you're, you're definitely right. That sounds like that's pretty much what white is playing in the vast majority of, especially three and four color piles. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, uh, yeah. So, and, and this can be like a separate topic of like identifying what is the support color. I mean, like blue actually has this issue as well. Like if you look at mono blue versus like blue splash into other colors, mono blue actually like just really sucks because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, like countering like one card for one uh, and spending two mana to do it and then someone else casts another spell and then everyone just looks at the blue player and is like, so why'd you counter the source of plowshares and not the tainted pat blue player, right? And it, it, it just sucks because, like, being that mono blue player, you, like, you're, it's really hard to actually gain card advantage. Like, card draw is really important in blue because you have no staying power with your spells. None of them, like, you have more instances of sorceries, which allows you to play more dynamically and fast, but none of them ever stay in play. And so you really struggle with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're playing it blue into other multicolors, you're able to, like, facilitate and pad that so well and so you never really see the weaknesses of just playing blue by itself right like if for example your opponent resolves a collector oof on the stack you're like oh i really have to counter it or else my artifacts you know go kaput but you know if you're the soul type player you're like yeah sure oof resolves i have an assassin's trophy in my hand right and i'll just mm-hmm. blow it up later or like i don't even need uh i don't even care about oof because i'm running green in my package and i have a bunch of mana dorks right like yeah. i don't even need artifacts and so every color, like, like because when they say that white is a very good support color, it, it almost kind of, like, begs the question, like, well, isn't every color kind of doing that? Like, what color is the winning color here? Like, and, and, and so Crater Hoof Behemoth is, like, green's, like, winning card. Thassa's Oracle is blue's winning card, right? Uh, when you look at, like, red, you can look at something like Underworld Breach, which is, like, uh, even though it doesn't say you like win the game or and such, it, it tends to string a lot of cards together and allow and is that connective tissue to winning the game. Uh, Demonic consultation or tainted pact is often like that as well for for black, right? Uh, but again, and this goes back to like the whole thing about like white and the challenge of white is you. It's really hard for someone to look at white and find what the winning card is because they can look at Heliod and Walking Ballista, but that's almost like you need those two cards hand in hand. Like Heliod just doesn't do anything by himself for a lot of players. I mean, sure, life gain is great, but again, it still begs that question of like, well, how am I winning with this in that way? And so I think that that's currently the thing that a lot of people question for with white and mechanically. White has often been like that kind of color. Is like, well, you are good in. I mean, like, if, if white was like a person, uh, like a parent or something like that, like every and all the colors were parents, like blue would be like, here, here's the Thassa's Oracle for your journey. Green is like, here's a Crater Hoof Behemoth for your journey. Red is like, you know, here's an Underworld Breach or a Dockside. Black is like, I'll give you a Demonic Consultation and a Tainted Pact, uh, or even like a Doomsday or or Yogmoth's Will, right? And mm-hmm. then white is like, look you're good enough to win for however you feel like i mean i don't really need to give you anything but i'll give you a bunch of other stuff to make sure that you just don't die (laughs) yeah it's 
it's kind of like uh, kind of going into a video game reference. It's like everyone else will give you a mystical item, but the other one is like you've probably leveled up enough. You're probably fine if you know what you're doing. Yeah, and so instead they give you a grappling hook, and it turns <laughs> out, you know, the, the grappling hook is pretty OP at exploration and map navigation, but it does nothing in a boss fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, that's a really interesting way to bring it up. And yeah, support colors, tertiary colors. Again, that's a whole nother can of worms right there. But yeah, it's it's really good that I think we brought that up because again, it's very relevant that we're not typically seeing people just going crazy about uh, you know new white cards for CDH most of the time unless they fill that specific purpose. Whereas again, you did mention that for mono white, there's always room for that toolbox, and white just doesn't have toolbox room in other colors. Or in in partnership with other colors, it, it's basically you sit in your one little box and you do these things. You're going to be running your silence effects. You're going to be running Savine's reclamation, but you're only running that if you're also running breach, brain freeze, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's literally just there because it does one thing. It does that one thing very well. Whereas, yeah, again, mono white, you have that nice toolbox feel where these pieces may not do anything overly powerful, but if you put them together. You know, you're, you're, you're going to kind of Voltron this, you know, without actually a Voltron strategy. But yeah, you're going to just throw five things together and it's going to just work. Yeah, I will say that, uh, yeah, white, so so white does definitely have the toolbox synergies. Uh, it's just modifying your statement here a little bit here. It's sure. just more of the fact that like every single time you look at something that white could do in terms of its toolbox strategies, like uh, there is a question of like, well, this other color also does it too, you know? And so... To give an example, you have Recruiter of the Guard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and Recruiter of the Guard can find Kikijiki, but it can't find Felidar Guardian. But Imperial Recruiter can find Kikijiki and Felidar Guardian, uh, for example. So, and in many ways, people can look at that and be like, well, that's better, right? Uh, Recruiter of the Guard finds Solitude, uh, and Imperial Recruiter cannot find Solitude. But Solitude also requires that you exile white card from your hand. And so how often are you going to have a white card that is worth pitching, like, would you pitch a silence for a solitude? You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, and so for a lot of these multicolored decks, um, it, like, like white is a very supportive color. They see it as a support color, but they often just question in terms of, like, how does that, you know, fit into the composition of other things when there are other alternatives that they could be playing into. Uh, and, and that's the part. Like, you, you can make it work, it's not saying that you can't. It's just oftentimes people are, like, like when, when people are brewing multicolored decks and they incorporate white in them, uh, it's oftentimes they're looking at the other colors and they're like, well, this makes my deck easier from a mana balancing perspective and card balancing perspective. Whereas in mono white, you can see those synergies pop out more because they cut off the they, they cut out the card draw they cut out the ramp they cut out the tutors and all that stuff and just lean in more on like white cards interacting with other white cards to do uh to do other shenanigans and so it's almost like a reward for doubling down on something uh where each card where where in isolation they're just weaker than card draw tutor and ramp but in cohesion they 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 can uh, essentially compete with that. Uh, and that sounds really outrageous to say because, you know, people are like, well, what could be better than card draw? Um, but, you know, recursion is a huge thing that, like, some people forget about. And uh, if you ever play in a limited environment setting, you do definitely see that happen. And 
while people can split hairs and argue that well this isn't limited this is constructed uh like the the, the very definition and like design space of magic uh, at the end of the day, you could still be conformed within a limited setting. Like, think about, like, true name Nemesis and Legacy, or, like, Delver. It is, at the end of the game, you're still playing within the boundaries of a limited format, um, because you're not fighting against some big, fat 8-8 uh, or whatever. You're fighting against a 3-3 flyer that you have no way of stopping, or, like, a 3-1 unblockable. Uh, and in CEDH, it is very much the same thing. Like, if I have an Adeline in play and I'm attacking you with it, it doesn't matter how large your life total is, you're going to die to commander damage in very much that same fashion. So, uh, yeah, it, like, that, 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 that's, that, that, that's sort of like my whole spiel and tangent about, uh, white sacrificing those things for higher end synergies and sort of like that distinction trade-off on um the fact that uh multicolor uh decks running white don't tend to run the other white synergistic cards because they they, they have other colors to compensate for that whereas mono white when it doubles down it, it can be very very uh 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 what's the word exaggerated in terms of like how not not, not exaggerated as in like overinflated, but like uh it it, it 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 it's an extreme where it really showcases mm -hmm. uh how hyper synergistic cards can be uh with white yeah it, it accentuates i i guess would be a good term yeah. yeah yes yes there you go i finally figured it out <laughs> <laughs> all right well yeah i want to thank you so much again charles for taking the time to talk with me today again it's always great talking and it's amazing just to hear so much about mono white because again i i love playing white and mono white and casual but again it's one of those things where it's difficult for me to to get over into that into cdh and it's always nice to have someone to talk to who knows what he's doing and really gets into the nitty-gritty of the of the whole issue so uh, thank you so much yeah thank you yeah, and again, uh, where can people find your uh, your content if they're interested in learning more about either your decks or just some of the, the brewing thoughts you've been working with? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, at Ilvaldi, uh, and uh, I-L-V, as in Victor, A-L-D-I. Uh, and uh, yeah, you guys can tag me there or uh, send me a direct message or just at me and uh, I can respond. Uh, that is currently the best way to reach out or contact me at the moment. Uh, I, uh, you can also probably find me on the Playing With Power Discord uh, and uh, for, for for now. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, 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 that's, those are currently like the two ways that you could really reach out and find me, but definitely uh, my social media is probably the where I will check things often the most nowadays. And again, the, the folks out there can also watch you playing on Playing With Power very, very frequently and actually doing very well with some, uh, we'll just say off-meta decks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. for sure, I do very well. <laughs> I mean, other times, like, you know, I, 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 take, a, I take the hit from someone comping off with uh, Rogsai or Blue Farm and such. It's, it's, always, it's always a good game, though, mm -hmm. uh, in either case. Uh, All right. Yeah, sounds good. 
Yeah, and if you're interested in hearing my previous discussion with Charles about his Owl of the Dawn Sky decklist, uh, the Planeswalker series, or just any of the MTG and Quarantine Podcast episodes in general, you can find those on the usual podcast outlets. It says your Google's Apple, Spotify, Player, FM, Rocketcast, Podcast, Overcast, Breaker, a million other ones. I never remember all of them, but if it's a major podcast outlet, you probably can find my content on there. You can also find me on the Twitters at, at MTG in Quarantine. I'd like to utilize this opportunity again to give another huge shout out and thank you to all the awesome people who support me over at patreon.com slash MTG in Quarantine. So huge round of thank yous to Mr. Big Benz, Anomaly, Nick S, Frugal Brutal, Jen of the Filthy MTG Casuals, and Coach J-Row for supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash MTG in Quarantine. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this really amazing, really insightful episode of the MTG in Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.